back to Life and Life Only. This is episode 19 called Life Coaching, Creativity, Communal Experience and Mental Health. Bit of a mouthful there, but uh, the reason for that title is in fact that this is really two different uh, posts from my blog. The second one I'll probably call it an essay. It's a bit longer and more detailed. And uh, I'm combining the two because there is definitely some common ground to be found there. So first of all, I'm going to talk about life coaching in a minute. And then um, the creativity, common experience and mental health is really about how creativity can be very therapeutic. You can be your own life coach. That's one of the things that I would definitely say. At the same time, <laughs> I am promoting myself as a life coach because I'm transitioning, basically. I'm still an English teacher. still an English teacher at heart, probably, as well as a podcaster. But um, I'm getting a bit more life coaching experience. So I'm going to talk about that first. From my blog, again, I'm going to read, but... Uh, interject when necessary. So what is life coaching? Life coaching has been given many definitions, but it is essentially an ongoing conversation between coach and client that seeks to be purposeful and inspire the client to create the life that they want. This is done by creating the right conditions for the right outcomes to happen, and crucially the client must be inspired to find the answers themselves, typically through the use of questions from the coach, as well as mirroring of the client's own language, rather than being given advice and instruction. Essentially, life coaching uses dialogue to continually move in the right direction towards the life for the client that they aspire to, helping them along the way by identifying strengths and limitations, refocusing their life goals, and moving past challenges that stand in the way of these goals. Coaches have semi-humorously been described as part consultant, part motivational speaker, part therapist, and part rent-a-friend. I'd probably add cheerleaders to that as well. I've heard that said. Though the fact that the role encompasses different strands shouldn't detract from its fairly concrete definition and the well-established methods involved in successful life coaching. So let's unpack that a little bit. So an ongoing conversation. So again, this is not about, I'm the expert, I think you should do this with your life, here's some homework. There is homework, in fact, involved in life coaching sessions. Uh, And that's not just because I'm an English teacher, but um, you do give the client something to do between the sessions. So... um, The homework aspect, yes, but the thing about giving advice is really that you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't use the word should, certainly shouldn't use the word must. What you're doing is having, as it says, a conversation that in a way is fairly seamless, which is true again of language lessons, just bring that in again. When the the client or the student, whichever situation it is, has got the right attitude, it should flow pretty effortlessly and the coach is a guide essentially guiding you to the right path but not having not having it decided in advance that's the thing it's not you know we want to achieve this by the end of this session you might have some general goals for the session but it should be pretty organic in my opinion so just to go through some of this again helping them by identifying strengths and limitations refocusing their life goals the life goals i think should be pretty precise or very precise even they should be manageable There's an acronym that I can't bring to mind for goals, but if you investigate life coaching, you will inevitably come across that. It's to do with your your goals being realistic, achievable, attainable, etc. And then to move past challenges that stand in the way of these goals. So move past, acknowledge still. A lot of this is about acknowledgement of reality. There's an American strand of life coaching, and I'm generalizing terribly, but I started listening to some podcasts of some American life coaches. They all seem to be very much almost bombarding you with positivity. And of course, there's a place of positivity. But I think perhaps just to make a 
incredible cultural generalisation. <laughs> the British would probably tend towards realism, whereas some Americans might tend towards positivity. But there's a place for all of it, of course. Perhaps the best life coach would be then Canadian, because they get little bits of both of those cultures anyway. Okay, next uh, section. In what areas can life coaching be useful? Life coaching can be useful in such areas as negotiating better interpersonal relationships, improving physical well-being and fitness level, deciding a career path, managing time and energy better, organising personal finances and improving the image of an individual or perhaps a department or entire company. Because, of course, coaches are employed by corporations and probably smaller companies as well to actually talk about the culture of a team of people or a department or an entire company. As we said, perhaps if it's a smaller company. One thing I wanted to bring up at this point, so there are some classic scenarios. Improving your relationships, you know, managing your time, improving your lifestyle, physical fitness and that kind of thing. These are pretty classic things. And my own spin on life coaching is that there's really two strands to it broadly. One is a very practical one. So a lot of these American coaches that I was listening to they're actually working with people who are already successful and they just want to be more successful. You know, they just want that extra bit of oomph, let's say. So there's a practical aspect, but I'd say there's an emotional aspect and this is where you have to be a little bit careful straddling the fine line between life coaching, mentoring and, and um, counselling and even therapy, in fact, as well. Because there's a hell of a lot of uh, a certain type of therapy, which I'm going to talk about in a second, which is involved in life coaching. So what you have to be very careful of is not to start, certainly not prescribing medication if you're a, a life coach, unless you've got other therapy qualifications. However, there is an emotional component to it. That's what I was coming to. There's some people who want just totally practical advice and they won't really want to talk about their lives, but other ones, definitely, there's an emotional barrier that needs to be investigated. And the way I look at it, let's say between a life coach and a counsellor, or a therapist, if you're quite an anxious person and you want some practical steps to try and reduce that anxiety, perhaps by refocusing your mind, you know, your priorities and what you're thinking about at any particular moment. But then if you get someone with severe anxiety, then as a life coach, you, in my opinion, you shouldn't treat them unless you want to say to them, I can be a good first step, you know, then you can decide, you know, I can refer you to a therapist or, or a counsellor. So essentially a two strands, sort of practical and emotional. And I think the person's personality, both the coach and the client, will probably determine how that goes. And in my uh, admittedly limited experience, you can kind of tell which one they need more of, the practical or the emotional. And um, often it just comes out in the, the way they speak and the aura they have about them. At the same time, you know, you shouldn't second guess. So you've got to let the session go as it needs to go, basically. And then the last section here, so further thoughts. A life coach is not a qualified therapist, a counsellor or mentor, though there is undoubtedly overlap in those areas. A good coach will be a person with specific skills and knowledge who will come armed with exercises and activities to help the client adapt their outlook and see things differently, not unlike cognitive behavioural therapy. So there you go. There's a therapy very much in the life coaching envelope. You know, This is the situation. How can I deal with the situation better? Let's role play it or discuss it. And let's identify the point at which you fall into a bad habit and then we can try and change it. 
But crucially, they will also have a manner designed to give the client a safe space to fully express themselves and, if required, both unlock and offload emotions that are not useful and need to be expressed and or discarded. And who couldn't do with that? I've written at the end. One of the English books even they talk about, there's a statement that you have to either agree or disagree with and then write something about it. And one of them says, everyone could benefit from seeing a therapist from time to time. And I think if you really drill down, it's hard to disagree with that, really. Just look at a couple of these things again. So manner designed to give the client a safe space. So you'll find with life coaches, so much of it is the personality. Yes, you have to, you know, it's very much beneficial to have qualifications and also to, you know, to have done a, a fair amount of reading, as far as I'm concerned, have these exercises and activities ready. But also so much is in the manner and things like um, also open-ended questions. So instead of saying, um, would you like to resolve the situation? That's a closed question because it basically has a yes or no answer. You could ask, what are the things that you would like to change? And then they have to come up with an answer. They can't just give it a yes or no. And there was just one phrase from the first paragraph, creating the right conditions for the right outcomes to happen. And this is quite, um, I don't know, a 21st century idea. The idea that you don't chase your goals and you don't chase, crucially, happiness. I'm on board with that because in my life, whenever I've chased things, it's never quite worked out. But when I've created the conditions, you know, I've put something out there, I've contacted someone, I've created the conditions for then the magic to happen. As I was saying earlier, you can self-coach. You know, I think I've been self-coaching without realising for about the last 10 years. Well, probably my whole life, in fact, but more intensively the last 10 years. Of course, society will say it's very weird to have a conversation with yourself, but you don't have to do it out loud. But I think more people than you realise probably have dialogues with themselves, you know, because it's almost like your wise self looking in on your life, the way that we can look in on someone else's life. And then you've got you who's stuck in the middle of it, creating all these traps for yourself which is what I think we all do at various times. Anyway, that is an introduction to life coaching. I'll talk about it at the end as well. I'd like to move on to the essay I wrote called Creativity, Communal Experience and Mental Health. I wrote this back in 2015. I'll just give you briefly the background to it. I moved to Spain, to Madrid, and one day I went to an open mic in an Irish pub and I stumbled upon, not literally because it was early in the evening, a group of musicians, and I just described them in the first sentence. Fun, interesting, and creative people. And that activated a kind of musical renaissance for me in terms of songwriting. I'd always been playing music, but I'd been a covers act for about 10 years. And uh, suddenly, you know, I played a few of my old songs and a couple of people said, oh, you know, why don't you do those instead of messing around with covers? And then I, I ended up making an album, came out the year after, 2016 and then I proceeded to make two more studio albums which sort of pulled together lots of musical ideas and fragments from the past and I in a bit of a panic once I'd said right I'm gonna there's a second album in fact once I said oh, I'm gonna make a second album which meant writing fresh material then it was a little bit of panic but uh, I used some of the things that I'm actually going to talk about in this essay to spur me on so that was such a big thing you know 2015 was such a huge year and really I had um just to personalise for a minute, I really cut out the partying completely, certainly in the second half of my 30s. So this was a bit of a, a throwback as well to my youth. I think it's like that for a few people, in fact, in that scene. So yeah, it was very unforeseen, exactly what happened in the next four years. But uh, 
I think I wrote this a few months after I'd met all these people and got involved in this music scene. So anyway, without further ado, let's get to it. Okay, here we go. I've recently had the good fortune to become part of the musical community of Madrid and to encounter a group of fun, interesting and creative people. Like me, they appear to be curious, sensitive, restless and occasionally troubled souls, searching for the elusive and using performance as a way to simultaneously attempt to find some way to these untapped emotions while having enormous fun at the same time. Creativity is a strange process, often identified as allowing yourself to be a vessel through which it flows, as referenced in Julia Cameron's enormously instructive book, The Artist's Way. John Cleese gave a great speech about this, describing how the creative person needs to be able to be a child and enter a space where anything is possible, while being able later to put it together into something cohesive, rather than leaving it as simply a rash of ideas. If the vessel idea may seem somewhat pretentious to some, and there is certainly a craftsman element to the creation of an original work or reinterpretation of an existing one, there is undoubtedly some magic in the creation of something that is wholly yours, with that mysterious element of not knowing how and why you came up with what you did. Anyone who knows me for more than 30 seconds soon learns that I'm a fully-fledged Beatles devotee, and they had some interesting experiences and perspectives on this subject. Paul McCartney, if he is to be believed, woke up with the tune of his most successful song yesterday in his head, taking it round to friends to play them the melody to see if it was something that was already out there in the musical ether, and later wondering at some point whether he really should be taking the credit for something he'd apparently dreamed. John Lennon characteristically saw creativity and fame in psychoanalytical terms, stating, I'm only famous because of my repression. I only made it because I have a stronger drive to say, look, mummy, daddy, now will you love me? The implication being that the more desperate the need for deprived love, the harder the drive is to turn the expression of it into a potential career and gain the love and respect of millions of people. George Harrison dryly and concisely commented that songwriting is like going to confession. And Ringo? I believe he's an underrated and highly creative drummer, but he took a full four years just to write Don't Pass Me By, so I have to discount him on this particular subject. So that last humorous part aside, although Ringo did take four years, because there's an interview from 1964 where he sings a bit of it, or sort of talks a bit of it. <laughs> Going back to the group in Madrid, yeah, one thing I noticed straight away is that none of us were, I wouldn't say none of us, a lot of us didn't fit into what you might call the straight world, that respectable world of putting on a suit sometimes, dressing smartly, going to the office, whatever it is. But also, you know, just putting on this facade of normalcy. Whereas, you know, if you scratch the surface of most people's normal lives, you'll find some craziness there. So I always used to wonder when I looked at the group and think, well, who's the crazy one? Is it us or is it society? And I think the jury's out there, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, when I look at some straight, respectable people that I know, I know that there's way more going on than it might seem. Anyway, let's carry on. John Lennon's comments hint at the well-known idea of the tortured artist, whose soul cannot rest until he's purged himself of the overwhelming feelings that inhabit and haunt his being and are making him or her unhappy. This is far too big a subject to go into here, but it's probably true in some cases, though like many things in our society, reduced over time to a well-worn cliché. What I can say with conviction is that a great deal of the songwriters and general writers I've ever known seem to be bonded by a certain eccentricity and the implicit shared experience of being considered outcasts in the glorious, straight society into which most of us are born. Don't kid yourself or buy into the propaganda that society is liberal. 
the atmosphere in most schools and perhaps homes is archly conservative, without much deviation from accepted norms needed for behaviour to be deemed unacceptable and for the perpetrator to be an outcast. The foul outrage of news anchors and journalists to what are considered vague controversies in the real world encourages and shapes this conservatism. And this is 2015, friends, before, uh, what can I say, the Black Lives Matter era or the, the racism era. And I'm saying that not to denigrate Black Lives Matter, but to say that, you know, we are entering an era where ideas take on hold and then X amount of people just pile on. I said, talked about faux outrage. You know, I heard an anchor, someone mentioned the N-word, and I, I will call it the N-word because I'm not setting out to upset people. But the look on this woman's face, like, <gasps> you really that outraged by someone using a word, for God's sake. So uh, when I said conservative, I'm thinking perhaps conventional might be better because I'm sure there are some wacky conservatives and some very buttoned-up liberals. In fact, I've met probably both of those types. So what's a performance? Well, it's a rush of adrenaline hard to match, and the first experience of putting yourself up on that stage to express yourself in front of others is surely never to be forgotten. I used to suffer from terrible nerves when playing my first band, and I was only playing bass rather than being the one that the audience focused on. That magic moment when you hit the first note of the first song and the nerves clear was always the one worth all the nervous energy expended beforehand. I'd previously written in full about the recollections of a certain Welsh drummer when he was struck by nerves at his band's first big concert and the phenomenon of nerves themselves. See The Way of the Nervous Official, which coincidentally enough was in fact the last episode of this podcast. But in short, there is a tremendous vulnerability involved, perhaps even more in acoustic performance, which is very often solo, and which has an intimacy and purity hard to match in any other situation, as well as a physical closeness to the audience. Physical tiredness often accompanies nerves as a body struggles to deal with the energy required to fend off the excess adrenaline. Personally, my nerves disappeared as a musical performer after I had the far more terrifying ordeal of acting in a full-length Shakespeare play in the glamorous environs of a hall in Barons Court, West London, with a captive audience of around 80 and as an aside, I've written, I think the jury's out on whether it's scarier to perform in front of a small or large audience. The play was Love's Labour's Lost, one of the bard's earliest and dullest, and I stood in the wings, physically shaking like a leaf, trying to remember my cues and trying to remember to put some emotion into it, beyond just remembering my lines and getting through it. Our director had helpfully told us that it's better if you learn the lines well, but not too well, as the risk element will improve your performance and I put, while simultaneously shredding your nervous system. Thanks for that. The huge upside of this experience was that performing songs became incredibly easy in comparison, and is something that a seasoned performer generally finds more comfortable than other pursuits, stand-up comedy being another example of a remarkably difficult and nerve-wracking art form. In performance, you give of yourself, and you hope that the audience appreciates your efforts, even if they don't quite understand them. Performing original songs, usually not known well by the audience, and performing songs of familiarity are two very distinct things. I personally like to merge the two, usually ending with something upbeat and familiar as a kind of reward to the audience for listening through the unfamiliar. I apply this to myself, not as a general rule, and I know that many songwriters whose material is very easy on the ear on first listening and beyond. Where communal experience comes into it is the sheer joy of singing and playing together, and we have to thank the songwriters who created these instantly memorable songs for inadvertently creating these wonderful moments. I had an experience of this last week at a rockabilly jam session in Madrid. Having eight or nine players with guitars, banjos, mandolins and harmonica in multiple voices was uplifting for everyone, and after the regular session was over, some of us continued for a couple more hours, finding common ground and songs between us, 
and having the whole of the small bar involved in singing along. To reference the Beatles one more time, only one more, I promise, it reminded me a little of the famous performance of Hey Jude on the David Frost Show in 1968, where people of various colours and creeds all joined the band for the four-minute na-na-na-na-na-na-na extended finale, all packed into a tight space as we were last week. Finally, I've long been interested in mental health and well-being, having studied psychology at college, read a number of books on the subject, and had my occasional brushes with the dark side. Depression has become a very overused word, and it has been glamorised in many ways, making it seem cool to be unhappy and making the person seem deep and spiritual because they don't smile a lot. I don't dismiss this entirely, and I don't mean to make light of people's problems and the difficulty of simply living life itself, and I've just put a quote here from Bob Dylan's autobiography, Chronicles. He quotes one of his relatives telling him, Try not to judge too harshly. Life is a struggle for everyone. However, I have an uncle who's been clinically depressed for over 30 years and needs a cocktail of drugs to lead the simplest of lives. So I think some perspective is required. The distinction that needs to be made is between having an actual illness and simply having sustained bouts of negative moods for whatever reason. For the latter, there are solutions that don't require therapy or medication, such as meditation, and even just simple deep breathing, exercise, including remarkably effective holistic pursuits like yoga, dietary changes, reduction or elimination of processed sugar and alcohol being a good start, minimal exposure to television, media, and general fear propaganda, including advertising, which is all about making you feel bad about yourself to sell you products, either blatantly or subtly, and even just a decision to make yourself feel better. The television and media issue is relevant here too because allowing yourself to be exposed to them means letting someone else shape your reality and effectively make your decisions for you, taking away self-empowerment. And since I wrote this, I have heard uh, on a podcast I was listening to someone talking about being depressed and having depressive moods, which is kind of similar to what I'd written here, and the idea that if you have chronic depressive moods and there doesn't seem to be any way you can get out of it, you know, and that goes on for months or even years, then that's probably full-blown depression. But as I was saying, it's become cool to be depressed and to ally yourself with sort of dark, depressed people, usually famous, of course. But, you know, you can cheat moods. This is something I've been saying to so many people in my various incarnations, whether podcasting, teaching, life coaching, whatever. You know, you can cheat your moods, and it's not. there's nothing wrong with that. Because if you have a bad mood and then you watch, uh, I don't know, a comedy program or you do a few stretches or you have a, a nice meal and a, a large slug of water or something like that, you know, you might find that your depression, which is, as I said, a depressive mood, your state, that's another buzzword for sort of 21st century self-development state, your state has changed and you've effectively cheated that. But there's nothing wrong with it because in a funny way that means that it wasn't really real, you know, it's just a creation of your mind. So think about that, you know, the next time you're in a bad mood, how much of that is my mind actually creating it for whatever reason? You know, you don't always try and figure it out, you know, because sometimes it's mysterious. Carrying on, I say to people who are unhappy, do you stretch your body? Do you eat nutritious food? Do you have moments of peace and reflection? Do you exercise? Do you wish to be positive or do you indulge yourself, perhaps feeling yourself a sensitive artist and so entitled to feel bad? Perhaps most importantly, do you allow yourself to feel tremendous pressure to be happy in social situations, even when you're not? I would much rather tell someone about it. I'm not judging because until relatively recently, I would have answered no to most of those and yes to the last one. But it is a remarkably liberating feeling to suddenly decide not to fear others and what they might think and to realise how much unnecessary stress is self-imposed. 
Bob Dylan, you lose yourself, you reappear, you suddenly find you've got nothing to fear. That's from the song It's Alright Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. I recently read an interesting theory from author Robert Greene that humans had so much to fear for such a long time in the days of hunting and gathering, with the constant threat of starving or being killed by other humans or wild animals, that when we emerged and found the relatively comfortable experience we have now, we couldn't turn off the fear mechanism, so instead started creating our own ones. And again, hard to dispute that. Think of it, you know, how much of your day do you spend being calm? How much time do you spend worrying? And are you worrying about anything concrete, or is it just some vague sense that you need to be worried all the time? Again, turn on the TV, that will help you feed that perfectly. The worry-fear mechanism, you might call it. Tying this back to performance and communal experiences, the conclusion I've reached in terms of the way to achieve happiness and well-being is that while all of the above strategies for improving mood are effective, the most important thing is people, positive relationships and shared experiences. Connection is another word that has been cliché, particularly in the self-help industry, which seems to reduce wisdom and the possibility of self-improvement to glossy, easy-to-read oversimplifications, but it is real. My biography can be summed up very simply. I was a happy, outgoing and confident kid who, through circumstances and bad decisions, retreated into his shell and became antisocial and distrustful for an enormous amount of time before gradually digging himself out of it to try to give people and life more of a chance. In my humble opinion, trying to connect to other people or to creative expression is a source of great joy that should be a constant in everyone's lives. And there you have it, people. That's basically today's episode. So I am a life coach. If you are interested in a consultation, I do free consultations to begin with, and then you can decide with zero pressure whether you want to carry on. You can just write to me at the address of this podcast, so lifeandlifeonlypod at gmail.com. And as regards the podcast, if you could... Perhaps leave a rating or a review on um, iTunes. I think Google Podcasts, they do that as well. Uh, Stitcher as well. You know the platforms. would really help the show. And then if you just tell others about it, share the links, etc. That would be wonderful. And I'd like to say thank you very much for listening. And I'll be back pretty soon. I'm going to tell you what the next one is, actually. The issue of conspiracy theory, more the phrase rather than the theories, is a constant preoccupation. <laughs> I'm sure you know that by now. And I actually managed to have uh, what you might call a debate, but I'd probably call it a discussion. It certainly wasn't a formal debate. With a young man who is a colleague of Karen Douglas, who you may have heard of. She's kind of become the academic poster girl for, you know, all conspiracy theories are rubbish, including COVID, of course. Nothing to see here at all. And again, I'm not saying that there's a lot to it, but it's just this shutting down, limiting the conversation, shutting it down instantly, establishing very, very narrow parameters. You know, don't question vaccines, da-da-da. Anyway, she was too busy to talk to me, so she referred me to a colleague of hers, a young man called Ricky Green. And I'll be honest, I went into the discussion having read the paper that Karen and Ricky had written together, or had been a part of. You know, I could have ripped it to shreds, to be honest, but I started chatting to Ricky. He's a really nice young fella. And um, what I'm going to do instead... I'm going to put the talk with Ricky out. And it was just very, very friendly. I got a few points out and he got a few points out. I think you'll enjoy the conversation, but I'm going to do an addendum because I had so many notes that I didn't get to. So that will be another episode in itself. And on the subject of COVID and propaganda, I'm soon to be recording an episode with Julian Charles of The Mind Renewed, which is going to be a swap cast, which is, you know, it's going to be an episode of both of our podcasts. So I'm very much looking forward to that. So it should all tie in. So the next three episodes... I think we'll make a nice, uh, I don't know, trilogy about propaganda and about how 
you know, alternative thinkers do get labelled as conspiracy theorists. I know you all know that already, but this will flesh it out nicely, I think. And of course, Julian is always great, great podcaster and a friend of mine as well. So thank you very much for listening to this episode and I'll see you very soon. All the best and goodbye.